Hi, you're listening to The Marijuana Solution, and this is Robert Roundtree. Today we're speaking with Dr. Joseph Rosado. He was one of the first physicians in Florida to take the required training and begin making cannabis recommendations. And today we're going to speak with him about some of the pharmacology around cannabis, some patient-doctor relationship issues, and just the overall status of the medical marijuana system in Florida. How are you doing today, Dr. Rosado? Good. Very good. Got a, a, some, a little bit of a break here between patients, so I got some time to chat with you. Excellent. Um, speaking of patients, are, are you noticing, um, like in, in the demographics, a specific type of patient that's coming in more, maybe, um, you know, the age range or a condition of those eight that maybe more people are coming in than others, or you got like a wide range? I have a wide range. Um, You know, I've got, I have, I notice, however, that I'm in two extremes. I have very, very young or very, very old. Um, Yesterday, for example, I started a gentleman who um, is 70 years old. And his wife had um, signed on with one of these internet groups Mm -hmm. that, uh, unfortunately, you know, she, she went that route, got her card. And then when she, once she got her card, she called the group and that group was no longer in existence. Oh my and goodness. So, shut down completely. Yeah. And so she's like, what do I do? And so she, they had heard that, um, true leave had opened up, you know, a mile and a half from one of my offices. And so she went there and she went there completely, you know, blind, deaf and mute. She's like, what do I do? And so fortunately, the people there were able to coach her and help her. And they said, look, you, you really need to be, you know, in the hands of a physician because you don't you don't have any experience. You need a little bit of hand holding. And so it just so happened that my business cards were right there and they picked one up. They called the office made an appointment. He still was not a patient. She was already a patient. And 25% of the consultation time was taken up with her, me educating her on what to use, what not to use, when to use it, etc. So a lot of these groups that, you know, provide, you know, quick service to help them get their card, they're great for individuals that have years of experience and knowledge about cannabis. But for a 70 year old, 72 year old that, you know, went to Woodstock, cause the guy told me, he's like, you know, I was at Woodstock. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you were at Woodstock in the sixties. This is 2017. We got, a, you know, a lot has changed since then. Yeah. The cannabis is upgraded. Yeah. And so, so we had a good laugh about that, but he's like, you know, that that's our experience. We were at Woodstock together and now, you know, we're using it medicinally and, you know, we're completely at a loss of what to do and how to do these things. So it, it was cool that they found me. So that's my, you know, somewhat demographic is I get the really, really young kids, you know, two to seven years old that are very, very ill or to 12, really. So like from two to 12, the really, really, really ill kids or 
you know, the older demographic, you know, the 60s and up. Yeah, so um, people like me would be good are the ones that should go to a doctor that's just going to put you in the registry and send you on your way. Um, definitely people that are not experienced should not, they should be seeking out a physician like you. I actually heard from another gentleman I know who owns a uh, group down south. He's not a doctor, but he's the guy who owns the practice. And he said he's heard and he can see, I guess, because you can look in the registry, there's a certain doctor or doctor's group. He wouldn't tell me the name, but they recommend 800 milligrams a day for everyone that comes through the door, new or not. And I was thinking to myself that that seems a little a little dangerous, um, especially for somebody that's new. I mean, they might go to sleep for a few days. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's... It's a rare patient that I am working with that I dose that high. Um, but again, it's someone that either A, has a ton of experience with what's going on with the movement and, and with the utilization of, of the different products, or B, they are terminally ill and have come from a different state with knowledge and experience. So in both cases, they have knowledge and experience. That's the that's the takeaway message. You, if you have knowledge and experience, you certainly you know warrant those high dosages. If you don't, then you know we start low, go slow, and titrate to effect, just like any other medication. Really, that's how I treat a lot of my diabetic patients with a sliding scale. You know, based on their sugar levels throughout the day will determine how much of a of a short acting insulin is used versus someone that, you know, is a novice, you know, newly diagnosed diabetic. I start those individuals out with oral medications, diet change, exercising, etc., and then bring them up to maybe insulin down the road if their numbers aren't well controlled. That's a pretty good analogy. Can you talk a little bit about um, the types of like titration levels you're seeing? I would assume if you're starting a lot of newbies, it's probably really low compared to what someone like me would even be used to. Like in the- oh, com- yeah, completely. Um, my newbies, uh, like the you know the the young lady, you know young lady, quote unquote, in her seventies from Woodstock. Uh, in, com- in in having the conversation, she showed me what her recommendation was. And that was another challenge for her was that um, the recommendation that they gave her did was not was just enough for her to get one cartridge. Oh, my goodness. So, because they dosed her so low and, um, you know, to last her the 70 days, I was you know, one cartridge for 70 days was a bit of a challenge for me to understand that because of all of her symptoms and all of her issues. You know, she's got multiple autoimmune conditions. She's got uh, multiple herniated discs in her neck and low back, you know, chronic severe muscle spasms on top of which, you know, she um, has some, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from previous relationships and events that occurred in her childhood and, and teen years. So as a result of that story per se, um, 
and looking at her her size and her weight, it, and I looked at her dose, I went, wait a minute, you know, th- this you need a little bit more to titrate up to get to the point where you need to be. And just like I titrate down on opiates and benzos and AEDs, I also titrate up on the use of cannabis. And so it's titrated to the patient's tolerance, but also not only to their tolerance, but to their ability to have their symptoms addressed. And that's where a lot of physicians have missed the boat and they think that, oh, it's like an antibiotic. It's, you know, 500 milligrams two, three times a day and you're done. That's it. And it doesn't work that way. It's not like a fixed dose, like an antibiotic or blood pressure medication. You have to, you're working with and around the symptoms. And that's why I have patients keep a journal, document how they feel, how they're doing. And that's why I see them more frequently than the, you know, six and a half months that the state allows, again, because they're newbies. They're not experienced in, in, in the subject. Yeah, and you know, <clears throat> even for myself, day to day, my the dosage of medicine that I require to alleviate whatever symptom, it can change, especially um, mornings are a little different for me than nighttime. I've been meeting more and more people that are new um and to me those are the ones that are the most fascinating a lot of times it begins with a story of like i didn't believe in it or you know i didn't want to try it old people have their kids talking them into it and vice versa i'm getting a lot of like um like moms in their you know 40s 50s that have adult children in their 20s that it's a lot of their kids are frowning upon the fact that mom is using this. No way. Really? Yeah. I've, uh, I've got a few, you know, moms in their fifties that have, you know, and the, the kids are like split down the middle. Half of the kids are all for it and, you know, supporting mom in her idea and her suggestion recommendation. And they get the other half of the kids. They're like, you know, what are you doing? How dare you? You, you told us all through, you know, our, our teen years, you know, stay away from drugs and blah, 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 blah. And now you're, you're a pothead. I mean, like really aggressive with the moms. And I'm like, Whoa, what's going on here? So a lot of these patients that are in their fifties that have never used any type of, you know, not, not even cigarette smoking or, or alcohol, but they're in such severe need or, you know, cannabis as medicine, that it's their last hope, their last ditch effort. And so they're kind of sandwiched between their parents who are still alive and are in their 70s and their kids that are in their 20s. And they're sandwiched between the two, you know, educating and teaching and, you know, trying to convince them that, look, I'm not sitting in, you know, in my lanai getting high. You know, (laughs) this is medicine. And I think that's the thing that's been lost through the almost hundred years of propaganda is even people that have been using cannabis for like for decades sometimes still don't realize that it's all medicine. Um, 
like people um i like to say there's no such thing as recreational use really it's all medicinal um if you feel the need to use a substance to feel better to me you're alleviating some type of anxiety whether it's really low or whatever it is um i mean what's your opinion on that i agree i i i've read that statement and it makes perfect sense because it is medicine so the fact that you're using it, quote unquote, recreationally and a physician didn't rec make the recommendation, you're still getting all of the health benefits associated to that plant. You know, the antioxidant effect, you know, of the CBD and anti-inflammatory effect of the CBD, the analgesia, you know, the pain relief uh, from the THC, the anxiety, the you know, muscle spasms, you know, the... Um, the short-term memory loss that's needed for patients with PTSD. I mean, they're getting all of these amazing benefits. The fact that they didn't get a physician to recommend it for them is not relevant. They're still getting their medication. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned something about the short-term memory loss for patients with PTSD. Can you explain how that, um, what, what you meant there and what the benefits are? Sure. Um, when utilizing cannabis, specifically, you know, depending on, on the strain that you're utilizing, it, it does cause a sense of a short-term memory loss, meaning that in that span of time that you are under the effect of the medication, you, your brain is incapable or unable to focus on or think about certain memories. Uh, specifically, your indica strains tend to have that, that effect. And so a lot of my vet and my veteran patients, uh, I recommend that they medicate prior to going into counseling, prior to going in to see their behavioral health specialist, because by doing so, the behavioral therapist is able to delve deeper into the psyche because we've bypassed that, that memory of that's constantly lingering and is being thought of 24 seven, even though the event happened, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, some of my Vietnam vets, we're talking about, you know, in the sixties, um, and they're coming in now, they're still under care. So I recommend that they medicate prior to going into their counseling sessions because then their behavioral health specialist can delve deeper in whether using cognitive behavioral therapy or what gestalt, whatever technique they're using, they're able to get better results with the, with the patients. Yeah. And you know what? <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense to me now that you've explained it because, uh, I have PTSD. Most of it all stems from begins in childhood. And then, you know, I've been robbed at gunpoint and other traumatic events. But what I'm getting at is that incessant repeating of those thought patterns makes it, I mean, damn near impossible for a therapist to do any work because I've been in and out of therapy a bunch of times. But I never had anyone encourage me to use cannabis before. I usually shied away from it because I didn't want the therapist to think I was a pothead. There's that reefer madness propaganda that we've all bought into and you being like one of the top advocates in the state of Florida even fall in that stigma, which is sad that the government and religion has 
made everyone to feel that way. Yeah, no, seriously. I, I mean, I there is one one therapist I saw in Gainesville who was uh, the best I've ever seen. And the only reason he didn't call me a pothead is because, you know, after few weeks of therapy, I realized that he medicated as well. But this was after the 2014 bill passed that I found him. So I think people were starting to open up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, stoners were perpetuating. I'll call them stoners because that's what we call each other. But we perpetuated the myth. We call each other stoners, pothead, you know, <laughs> it's um, it was intense. But things are changing rapidly now, I think. And a, a lot of it has to do with physicians like yourself um getting out speaking and and being willing to speak the truth um i I read a report yesterday a doctor sent it to me let me see if i can pull it up and i'll read it for everyone listening um and basically what happened was she talks about her story from thinking you know everyone was full of crap about marijuana to being on the green team. Sorry, I can't pull it up, it's on Facebook, but but basically, I, I talk to doctors, I would say weekly, that um, it they just got on the green team. <clears throat> Are you noticing that? Because I know when you see patients just from working in a medical practice, you send notes out to like the oncologist or the, um, you know, the endocrinologist for your diabetes patients. Are you noticing them getting a little more interested in what you're doing with the cannabis? Um, specifically, the hematologist oncologist. Um, in fact, this past weekend, I was at a Christmas party, and um, when I got there, the the senior partner for the group, the minute he saw me, the first words out of his mouth after you know after we gave each other a big uh, hug was. How's the marijuana doctor? <laughs> I'm like, you don't call me Joe anymore? I mean, what the hell, man? <laughs> He's like, yeah, how's the marijuana doctor? How's it going? And then the other partners and associates in the group, every one of them were, pre- were introducing me to other either colleagues or family members or friends as, you know, this is the marijuana doctor, you know, this, if you have any patients that need any cannabis or medical marijuana done right, you know, this is who you need, re- you need to refer to. So, and this was one of the groups that, they're a very, very large group, outsource any um, patients, any and all patients for medical cannabis. And initially they were, you know, they were reserved, they were cautious. And one of the associate doctors is originally from Peru. And when a few weeks ago or last month, when they decriminalized medical cannabis in Peru, I sent him the link and he read up on it and saw it. And at the meet, at the dinner this past weekend, he's like, you know, after reading this and seeing the patients coming back to me that you have taken care of, this needs to be completely legal. Forget about just, you know, medicinal. And I was like, damn, you know, cause this guy is extremely conservative in how he thinks and how he practices. And he was, you know, talking about 
full, you know, full on legal, you know, legalization. I'm like, wow. So that's so, good. You know, it, 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 you know, it made me feel good to know that I was instrumental in helping him see the light for lack of a better term and understand that there's a lot more to this than just, as you said earlier, you know, being a stoner or being a pothead. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's really professionals like yourself and other physicians and then the patients that they're seeing, basically the case studies that you guys can talk of, you guys and girls can talk about that are really getting some of the more conservative people's attention. Because I'll be honest, most conservative people, really conservative people, don't want to listen to what I have to say sometimes when I come in because I got long hair, I got a beard. That's okay, though. I just went and picked up three suits. Yeah, you show up in your tie-dye shirt with your flip-flops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that, hey, that's okay, though, because I took a recommendation from Representative Carlos Smith. I went to Sarar and picked up three suits last night, two pairs of shoes. So I'm, I'm ready to go now. I'll play everyone's game. But I, really? Yeah. Carlos told you that? I asked him. I said, hey, Carlos, because I saw him at the True Leave opening. I said, I said, um, you know, Representative Smith, where do you get your damn suits and who does them? Because you always look so good. You know, you're all, the two of you guys, but I can't pull off the linen like you do. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean you always look good. Y'all two are, might be the best dressed people that um, we see around the industry from, you know, on a current or a regular basis. But yeah, he told me to go there, get him tailored, and so that's what I did. A guy named Andre is out there at Sarar off of I Drive, hooked me up. He did a really good job. Um, I'd never even been measured for a suit. You know, I was a guy that just went into Dillard's, got one two sizes too big or too small to wear one night and leave somewhere. I'm ready to go though now. They 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 can't they can't deny me. I might even cut my hair. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> One step at a time, Robert. One step at a time. No, no, no. I do it every year. I cut my hair once a year and people freak out. It's usually about this length because it starts to get on my nerves. Um, but back to the, the serious conversation, you know, we're, we're having at hand. Can you explain how the receptors work to uptake the cannabinoids and how basically, I guess, what? hold on, let me rephrase that. I want you to kind of convey how, um, God, what am I thinking? Just the coverage of the endocannabinoid system and and how it can basically distribute these molecules to any area of your body. I I don't know too much about it. I just know it's vast and massive. Okay. Well, when one of the talks that I did um, in South Florida for Florida Cannabis, the question, where's the endocannabinoid system found in the body? And the physicians in the crowd yelled at the top of their lungs, everywhere. And that's, that's the answer. You know, the endocannabinoid system, the CB1, CB2 receptors are pretty much found everywhere in your body. Um, it can be broken and separated into CB1 receptors being in the in the what's called the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and then you've got the CB2 receptors, which are in the peripheral nervous system, which comprises of the cranial nerves, the spinal nerves, and all nerves that 
you know, for sensation and feeling and et cetera, as well as the um, immune system. So B cells, T cells, um, spleen, um, the lungs, the gastrointestinal system, the GI. So that's why, you know, people say, oh, is marijuana the panacea? Is, is it, you know, the cure-all? Well, you know, for lack of a better word, the answer is yes, because with the CB1, CB2 receptors being found everywhere in some way, shape or form, by using cannabis, you're going to address whatever issue you have going on in any specific part of your body or multiple parts of your body. And so when I'm interviewed on the radio or on TV, you know, one of my classic lines is, it's better for me to give a patient one medication for 10 conditions than 10 medications for one. And that, and, and that's the standard. And so by switching the, the mindset and the paradigm and going to, okay, you know, I'm going to give you this one medication and it's going to address your anxiety, your depression, your, you know, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, irritable bowel, um, your chronic pain from your neck, your chronic pain from your autoimmune conditions, you know, build up your immune system because you've got HIV or, you know, AIDS. We're addressing all these issues simultaneously with a plant because all these receptors are so amazingly found throughout the body. And because they're found everywhere, it works on every specific issue that these people are presenting, you know, to our offices with. Cannabis industry professionals want to gain some new leads, make genuine business connections and get premier brand exposure. This is your opportunity. NCIA's new industry socials are coming soon to Portland, Maine, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, Baltimore and Miami. Sponsorship opportunities available register today hey take a look at this they're selling smart pots they have pot that can make you smart where is it not that kind of pot smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants check this out this is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants they're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields plus smart pots are reusable and sustainable so you can use them over and over again no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor that's very smart but how good are they for the environment smart pots are bpa free and lead free so you'll always be able to ensure a pure clean grow and they're 100 made in the u.s over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout north america and ask for the original fabric container find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com Educate, empower, and engage in the evolution of the cannabis industry. Join thousands of industry professionals on August 3rd and 4th in Miami, Florida for the return of the U.S. Cannabis Conference and Expo inside the Hyatt Regency in downtown Miami. Register before May 1st for an early bird discount of 50% off now at usccexpo.com. That's usccexpo.com. Join us for the 2019 U.S. Cannabis Conference and Expo August 3rd and 4th in Miami. Register now at usccexpo.com. Expo.com. If it, I mean, it, it helps just about everything. Um, now, obviously, it doesn't help everyone. For I mean, it's nobody does, nor nothing does. And 
what I found interesting was if you have a deficiency in your endocannabinoid system, because we produce, you know, endogenous ones, that a lot of things that we see pervasive in society, depression, anxiety, insomnia, migraines, a lot of these things start to manifest. Um, I would love to see more research done on that because it probably means we need to start putting the plant into our diet, not necessarily in its psychoactive state, but the leafy greens, um, juicing it. Right. Juicing, uh, teas, you know, um, these are all ways that can be taken in and you can get more of the THCA and the CBDA um, when it's in a juice, you know, in whether it's in a juice or in a salad or in a tea form rather than, you know, when it's ignited and then you decarboxylate it and then it goes to the opposite and then you get the THC and the CBD. So it's good to be able to get both, which leads us always to the same conversation about having the whole plant. I was just going to ask. (laughs) Yeah, getting the whole plant rather than the extracts that we are getting because as you extract these oils, a lot of the viable ingredients that, you know, support that synergistic entourage effect are lost. And for that reason, you're got, you're, you, we've got great medicine, don't get me wrong, we've got great medicine because we've seen some amazing results. That notwithstanding, however, we could have better medicine if we had the whole plant rather than just a, par- a portion of it. Oh, 100%. Um, you know, as great as the extract products are, and I do like them, I mean, I really prefer the whole plant. The effects are different. Um, and as you alluded to, if I have the whole plant, I can juice it. I can put it in my salad. I can dry it out and use it literally as a, you know, a um, savory herb, especially some of the really good strains. Man, it tastes good. What do you think about the fact we're having to sue the state? on like all kinds of angles. We've got the John Morgan lawsuit. I mean, but there's lawsuits all over about the fact that flour is basically illegal and any type of whole plant, real whole plant medicine is uh, illegal despite it being in the constitution. I'm still curious how that works. I'm a physician, not an attorney. So I'm going to defer that to to my attorney friends. And I use that term loosely, but there are a few good ones out there that, that are really, you know, doing great work in the movement. Um, Nonetheless, you know. Okay, sorry, let me rephrase it. How does flour being illegal affect your ability to help the patient? It it prevents me from recommending a better medicine to the patient. Cool. And I'll save that last question for Minardi because I'm speaking to him later today. So I'll ask him the, the legal jargon. He's the one that could tell you because he's got his his fingers on the pulse of what's going on in, in that regard. Yeah, you know, for me, what it does to me is it forces me to still be in the black market. There's nowhere legally to purchase flowers. So I, I myself and pretty much everyone I know that uses cannabis have to break. We're forced still to break the law despite having gone through this, you know, a registry with an ID card, um, it's, it's, 
it is what it is for now. That's why we're still um, traveling around the state, yelling at politicians and letting them know that, you know, they need to give it to we the people. What has been... What has been your feedback from from your patients about the products that are available in the state? How well are they helping them? Um, no one dispensary has 100% uh, satisfied customers. Um, I've got close to a little over 500 patients and am managing. And um, I get positive, re- uh, positive feedback on every one of the dispensaries, and I get negative feedback on every one of the dispensaries. Um, and it's a, it's a preference. And it's no different than me prescribing in like a, a name brand thyroid medication versus a generic thyroid medication. There's patients that do fine with the generic brand, you know, the generic of Synthroid, which is levothyroxine. And there's individuals that will tell me just the name brand, doc, I'll pay the additional cost in, you know, with my insurance copay, I will pay the additional copay, but you have to prescribe the the name brand for me, not the generic. So it's the same feedback that I'm getting with the different dispensaries. Um, people rave about True Clear from True Leave, and some people say that it doesn't do anything for them, and they talk about you know Gemma from Knox. So you know, man, that True get, Clear is I, potent. So I, I want I the edibles of whoever's cooking that can. Um, doesn't feel the effects from them. Right. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I tell people too is um, I haven't tried every dispensary's products because some, you know, there's new ones that have opened. I've, I've tried most. Um, I, you know, it's no secret. I like True Leaf's products. But there are people that like products from every dispensary and, and there are people that don't. And then there's a lot of people I found that may like some a little bit of something from all of them because they exactly. don't all have so, the same products you know they're all kind of developing their own product my, yeah that, so the, that that's perfect because that's exactly what i tell the patients so it's like look you, you're you're not in bed with any one dispensary it's not like you know you can only go to cbs or walgreens because your insurance card says that you have to go to walgreens or cbs you can go to any dispensary you choose to so mix and match get us you know get an indica sativa hybrid from each one of them and, and, and compare, you know, for three days, use one product and then, you know, take a cannabis holiday and then, you know, for three days, use another product and, and, you know, from another dispensary and see what works, what resonates with you. Let you just brought up a good point um, that people like me probably never do, or at least I know I don't. What's the cannabis holiday do for your, for you um, as a patient? Well, it, it's not going to Colorado and, and, and getting... <laughs> that's not the cannabis holiday we talk about. The cannabis holiday, is, um, it, it's kind of like doing a control-alt-delete of your endocannabinoid system. 
it reboots your CB1, CB2 receptors to where it prevents the possibility of creating a, a level of tolerance and oversaturating the receptors. So what I typically recommend is for every, um, for every seven days that you're on medication, take one day off. So six days on, one day off. And I not only recommend that with cannabis, I also recommend it for my patients that have ADD, ADHD, and are still on Adderall, Vyvanse, um, Concerta, those medications. Because again, those receptors are constantly being fed that medication. And so I tell the parents or the adults, whoever's on the medication, to give it to them Monday through Friday, maybe Saturday, but for sure take either, you know, take one day off, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, take one day off just to give those receptors a rest and allow them to reboot. Same thing with the cannabis. I recommend that for, you know, one day during the week, just not use or not do anything and allow for those receptors to reboot and when they go back to reusing it, it's as if they were never on medication and they tend to get better results because they're always under the positive effect of the medication. This is almost similar to what a lot of people do with, um, you know, strength training or exercise to prevent the muscles from getting used to the activity. So they're always, you know, producing better results. Right, the cross training, you working different, you know, working different parts of your body at the same time, but not throughout the workout. Like you know, people used to do back in the day, where you know the gym rats would be in the gym, you know, two to four hours a day, and working, you know, th their biceps or working their legs, you know, but then they they knew enough to take a couple of days rest on, you know, that body part and work another body part just to allow for those um, muscle fibers to uh, recuperate. Yeah, um, my favorite gym rats are the ones that only realize they have an upper body, you know, and they're walking around on like the little peg legs. I would never yeah. tell them that because <laughs> those dudes' upper bodies are always like five times bigger than the average guy. So I, I'm not going to tell them. Um, let's talk a little bit about the way the body actually processes it and how quickly or slowly it can enter the system and as if, and if that's dependent upon a, you know, strain or whatever. Um, so, so how, how, how is cannabis processed to get into the body and like how quickly or slowly does it get into the system? And is that dependent on the modality? It definitely depends on the mode of administration. Um, and um, I've discussed this on previous presentations that I did for Florida Cannabis Coalition on the modes of administration. But, um, you, you know, right now the state of Florida allows, and we'll, we'll talk pertinent to the state of Florida because that's where we are right now. Um, you've got inhalation, you've got sublingual oils, you've got oral oils or oral capsules. Um, and you have topicals and the fastest way 
for the for the cannabis to enter the system is oh and there's a, a nasal spray I, I almost forgot that one anyway um which also falls under the inhalation um arena but the the advantage of inhalation is that the individual gets the results or feels the effect of the results within 10 to 20 minutes of inhalation and lasts between two and four hours depending on how they metabolize. I have some patients that are rapid metabolizers. I have some patients that are slow metabolizers of medication, whether it's cannabis or Coumadin, you know, warfarin, blood thinners, whatever. They metabolize things differently. And so for that reason, I give them windows. And that's part of them keeping a journal of what's working, how it's working, so that way we know how quickly they feel the effect and how long the effect lasts. But typically speaking, the, the inhalation area or mode of administration works relatively quickly, but also lasts a very short time. And so for this reason, I strongly recommend that my patients tag team and not only do inhalation, but also do either a sublingual oil or an oral oil or oral capsule because when they get to the tongue or swallowing it, um, it has to be metabolized in the liver. And if there are other medications, there's competition with the receptors in the liver for the metabolism of the, pro of the product, but not only that, you have to increase the dose because not all of it makes its way into the bloodstream. You know, it goes through this first pass metabolism and not a lot makes it into the bloodstream. Hello? No, what happened to him, Dr. Rosado? Oh, yeah, it's always the man, the ruddy. <laughs> you, you're probably. I don't know. You might you might not even be old enough, but it's always been the Russians. You remember it was the Russians in the the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, and I mean they're hacking elections now. Like it's always the Russians. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they're a good scapegoat, and they use us as a scapegoat too. And I don't think a lot of people realize it's all propaganda, folks. There's like <laughs> no, there's nothing going on there. Anyway, but sorry about that. Anyway, but to get to get back. Uh, we were talking about modes of administration. So um, I recommend that the patients do both, do the oral inhalation, the, do the inhalation and do the oral administration, whether it's under the tongue or oral like an oil, because by doing so, it, um, it takes the oral oil or sublingual oil about an hour and a half to two hours to start working but it lasts between 8 and 12 hours, again, depending on how people metabolize. So for that reason, when they do an inhalation, I recommend that they do the oil at the same time. And when the effect of the vape is wearing off, the effect of the oil that was taken orally or under the tongue is kicking in. And so they can use the inhalation kind of like as breakthrough, kind of to borrow from the pain management world where they use the extended release morphines and then the short acting oxycodone 
or hydrocodone for quote unquote breakthrough pain, I use the same concept with cannabis where we do the oils under the tongue or a capsule or taking it orally, having it kick in within an hour and a half to two hours, at the same time they do the inhalation and then the oil lasts longer and then they use the vaping throughout the day as they need it, which tends to help with the cost factor because if they're just vaping, then every two to four hours, you know, every two to four hours, depending on how they metabolize, they're doing, you know, three to 10 hits. Whereas if you've got the oil in your system, now it's more of a steady state and it's in your plasma and in your bloodstream longer. So it's working on all of those symptoms, especially those people that have like the, the gastrointestinal issues, like the Crohn's, the IBS, the ulcerative colitis, that they're in constant chronic abdominal pain or, you know, the ones with the herniated disc, etc. So does that make sense to you? Robert, did I lose you? No, I, I just hit the mute button. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Are they <laughs> hacking me again? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the Russians, man. It was, no, that brings me to my next question. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do exactly what you just described, and that is um, oral or sublingual and you know inhalation and can you explain why someone like me i have muscle spasms i know why because the liver converts it into 11 hydroxy but why when i take it oral it provides better longer lasting relief and what the difference between the 11 hydroxy and then you know our normal delta 9 which comes from smoking well the, the main reason is because um THC and CBD are lipophilic. They love fat. And so after it's ingested, it goes into the fat cells. And then it is slowly released throughout, you know, as the body is metabolizing objects or things. And so for that reason, it lasts longer because of how it's stored in, in our bodies, which is why it's important to take into consideration, like, somebody's, you know, body mass index, you know, the heavier you are versus the thinner you are, the more muscular you are, all these things are going to play a role in how well you do with cannabis. And so for that reason, and, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but, you know, my colleagues and I, the ones that are really doing this correctly, you know, Barry Gordon in Venice, you know, uh, Michelle Wiener, uh, Michael McKenzie, you know, and myself, you know, we all recommend that our patients keep a log of what's going on and keep a record. So that way, when they come in for their follow up visits, we have a better understanding of what's happening. It gives us data on them, but also helps us streamline their treatment to where they're getting exactly what they need and not overspending or, you know, throwing a bunch of shit on the wall and expecting for something to stick. We, we have a better understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely recommend that people keep a log. Um, any, any time that I've really dialed in and become focused as far as like my day to day activities, what I eat, um, even down to how I feel, I notice a lot of differences in how the medicine affects me, um, 
not necessarily how it affects me, but maybe how well it affects me, especially with um, my, my diet, I've noticed. Um, can you explain why some diets, and it probably, I'm just guessing, goes back to the liver, um, may interfere with the, any medicine's ability to, to be able to work effectively? I've seen well, some medicines, they don't, you say don't take dairy or, you know, there's like these warnings. Yeah, like grapefruit juice, you know, with, oh, with yeah. some medication. Um, because it's how, um, how it's absorbed in the system. You know, you take it orally, it has to be digested, broken down. And so with cannabis and if there are other medications, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these medications are metabolized in the same place as the cannabis is. And so for that reason... I recommend that they take the cannabis either an hour and a half to two hours before their regular medications or an hour and a half to two hours after their their medications. You know, the oral medication, the inhaled medication, that's not, uh, it's a moot point because the absorption occurs at the level of the lungs, at the, you know, at the capillary, the alveoli, you know, where there's the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide, that THC will bind to the red blood cell, and that's why it gets in faster and it's felt quicker. Same thing with the nasal spray for the kids, you know, when they're actively seizing and you use the nasal spray in each one of their nostrils, there's a very rich vascular bed in their nose, but it also goes directly through foramen or little openings um, into the brain where the CB1 receptors are located. And so it immediately gets to where it needs to be and it bypasses a bunch of other stuff. So for example, patients that have a, uh, a tube, a feeding tube, and the oils you know, can get messy or can become a cluster trying to get them down the feeding tube. For those individuals, I have the parents um, use the nasal spray and they can squirt this, you know, in, into the nose and it goes right into their system and it doesn't have to go through the, you know, the tube, the stomach and all these other, you know, pain in the ass places. So, yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I've spoke to two mothers. Um, you know, you know who they are. Um, Trisha I'm Dennis. Their doctor. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're their doctor. Trisha Dennis. Um, I did. We recorded a podcast last week that I'm working on editing, and um, you know her son Noah, and then Giselle Delgadillo. I guess that's the best a gringo can say that word down in Miami, and and her son Bruno, and they both use. To my knowledge, I know for sure Giselle does, and I'm pretty sure Trish does, but that spray you were you were talking yes. about, um, and. That's available because you have like two modalities of use as a patient, right? Like oral or inhalation, like you were saying, so you can choose to get two different types of products? On the Florida registry, yes. You are limited to just two modes of administration. Okay, so that brings me to my next question I was definitely <laughs> wanting to ask you about. What do you do as a physician if someone comes in with skin cancer they want to treat and you've already recommended oral and inhalation? I have them... Uh, apply the oil that they put under their tongue on their skin cancer lesions. Brilliant. 
they call that off-label use, which, I, to my knowledge, from working in a doctor's office, the majority of medicines are off-label. We do use a lot these of days. off-label. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy. Some of the medicine, like when you look up what it was marketed as, and then what it's actually being used for. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, Vistaril, which is an antihistamine. It's it's a Benadryl on steroids, is used for anxiety. Um, off-label. Hmm. How does, I mean, just to get off topic, that's interesting to me. How does, how does that work? Because it, it causes a sense of somnolence. It causes some sleepiness. And so by doing so, it addresses the anxiety by taking it. It, it lowers your revolutions, and so it slows things down for you. But okay. it's not, it's not um, addictive like a benzo would be, like a Xanax or clonazepam or Ativan. Those are the those are the worst to watch people come off of. That, um, that it's easier for me to get patients off of heroin than it is to get them off of benzos. And that's saying a lot because I mean people stick the needle in their arm until they die, you know. And the, but yeah, benzos, you, you see people shake. I mean, it almost causes seizures when you're coming off of them. From my experience. Yeah, and so weaning people off of, especially. Some of my patients that are on anti-epileptic drugs, they're on benzos. You know, some of the best, you know, conventional um, medications for seizures have for years been benzos, uh, whether it's, you know, Valium or Clonazepam or Ativan or uh, Xanax. So when I'm weaning patients off of that, I typically leave that one for last just because it takes so long to get people off of that medication. Yeah, and um, can you kind of reiterate to the listeners why it's so important to titrate and wean, you know, down, step it down really slow? And I believe the last time we spoke, was it like 10%? Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, the, the, the standard protocol is 10% reduction in your daily dose every um, 7 to 14 days because if you get off of or you stop using any of those medications abruptly you will go into withdrawal and a portion of that withdrawal some of the symptoms and and complications of withdrawal would be seizures um, nausea vomiting and so Imagine you, the person goes into a seizure while they're vomiting. Now they're going to aspirate. It's going to go into your lungs. And if they don't die, they will end up with a severe case of pneumonia where they're going to have to be admitted. So it, it causes a tremendous amount of issues. So for that reason and for that reason alone, it must be done in conjunction with someone that is experienced and knowledgeable in weaning people off of these medications. Uh, Because of my past experience in recommending and prescribing Suboxone, which is used for um, opiate dependence and addiction, and knowing how to wean people off of opiates and methadone and getting them on the suboxone and then eventually weaning them off of the suboxone to where they're completely free of any 
you know, dependence. Um, it's, it's a process. It's a long, arduous process, not for the faint at heart. So when people choose to do th- you know, do this and go this route, they must be aware of the reality that it's not a, you know, something that's going to happen overnight. It's a long process and they must be patient patients. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's frustrating too for, you know, talk, going around and talking to some of the patients because you can tell in their voice and see it in their eyes, like I'm, I'm ready to be off of this stuff and off of it like, you know, last week. But it, everyone listen, extremely, extremely important if you're trying to replace your medications to wean yourself off with the help of a healthcare professional that's, like Dr. Rosado said, experienced in doing it, because not all physicians are very experienced in it. Um, and also, what if their patient's taking more than one medication? Can they step all of them down 10% at a time, or should they do one at no. a time? Okay. No, no. The way I, I, the way I, it's done in my office, and the way I manage it is um, we pick one, we get them off of that one, and then once they're off, we we take it easy. We don't do anything for a couple of weeks, and then we pick another medication, and we we start the process all over again with that other medication, and we go one by one until we get to the point you know where that because by going slowly, we prevent one from the individual going into withdrawals, but also we prevent it being too shocking to their system to where they're not having major seizures. Now, during this time of the year, it's challenging because uh, one of the biggest issues is the change in temperature, the climate changes. And so, and I'm not talking about, you know, greenhouse effects or, or global warming <laughs> or anything. The Russians again. Yeah, I'm not talking about that, you know, so calm down, Bill Gore. What I'm talking <laughs> about is, you know, flu season, Cold and flu season, we mm. are entering the cold and flu season here in the area. And so a lot of the patients are contracting, you know, these viruses and they end up with a fever. And the minute they get a contract the virus and they have go into one of these fevers, that's it. They go into status and it's a bitch, for lack of a better term. To, to be able to break and manage those seizures. And a lot of times the patients have to go back and resort to, you know, the clonazepams or the Ativans because the seizures tend to last, you know, upwards of three and a half, five minutes. Oh, and, wow. And, you know, that's where, you know, the moms are breaking out the oxygen. They're using the nasal sprays. They're using the rectal, you know, clonazepam or Ativan to break the seizure because, you know, up to three minutes, moms are real comfortable and real calm because they're special needs moms. They're, you know, they're supermen. They're wonder women. Amazing. Beyond amazing. And so they know, they recognize their kids. They know they can pick things up. You know, they're like service dogs. I'm not calling moms dogs, but they're like service dogs. They're really in tune to what's happening with their kids. And so the instant that they pick something up, they're, they're on it. But when a lot of times these kids will go three, three and a half, five minutes, that's where you, you either got to 
you know, step up your game or down 911. Yeah, the awareness that these um, mothers have is nothing short of amazing. Educate, empower, and engage in the evolution of the cannabis industry. Join thousands of industry professionals on August 3rd and 4th in Miami, Florida for the return of the U.S. Cannabis Conference and Expo. Register for an early bird discount now at usccexpo.com. That's usccexpo.com. Now available for pre-order through crowdfunding for just $14 plus $10 shipping. Pouches, premium mixing and rolling pouches, allow you to carry and prepare your herbs for consumption with discretion and ease. These stylish pouches are handcrafted using strong zips, long-wearing buffalo leather outside, and smooth, cheap skin inside. A portion of proceeds go to fund vital medical research into cannabis for ADHD. See a demo and get yours now on Indiegogo or Pouches.com. That's P-O-U-C-H-Z.com. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put different celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is him pink, that's the point Download and play while you life yourself a joint The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crap channel. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Uh, I was hanging out with Giselle and William Medina and my girlfriend Hillary. And while we're talking, Giselle's looking at us and out of the corner of her eye, she noticed Bruno started to lock on a pattern and just like kind of waved her hand in front of his face and I was like oh my goodness because it was she noticed the signs like immediately of him starting to fixate on a pattern and immediately broke it up um and she I was actually like kind of looking at Bruno and didn't notice it I mean it, it the awareness is it's amazing to see yeah it's a, they've got they've got a, a heightened sixth sense that it's like ESP. They just know it. They feel it, and instantaneously they're all over it. And so, those are you know that's as you know a little bit about my practice. That's the my typical patient. You know, th- those are the patients I work with. Those are the moms I work with. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for me to get phone calls at three thirty, four in the morning, for coaching and and education on what's happening and what needs to, you know, what I recommend be done. Not that I'm giving a recommendation over the phone because that is illegal in the state of Florida, mind you. No, but just ongoing medical advice. Um, That's it. I'm just giving advice over the phone as I would any other patient. I'm not giving a recommendation over the phone via telemedicine, which is not allowed by the Board of Medicine and Florida Medical Association. Well, you never did that anyways. Um, and you always want, every time I've spoke to you, you want the hardest of the hardest cases, right? You like to crack crack the hard ones, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, all through all through school, all through my training, I, my attending physicians and my superiors were, were, they had a nickname for me. And they said I was a shit magnet because I attracted... <laughs> I seriously attracted the worst of the worst cases available and and the most challenging. And I would be in the, you know, whenever I was on call, the nurses at the hospital were like, you know, 
who's on tonight? And they're like, Rosado. I'm like, oh, damn. It's gonna, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna rest tonight. It's gonna be a tough night. That's right, putting in work. Yeah, because it was, there were, there were some nights where, you know, nobody, nobody got a rest. Everybody was cranking at a, at a hundred miles an hour and beyond. So that, that's the type of practice I like. That's the type of patient I attract. And, you know, because I'm a firm believer of the law of attraction, you know, that's why I attract what I, you know, that those are the patients I work with, which, you know, explains why, you know, my fees are a little higher than someone else's. And it's because of the amount of time that I dedicate to the individual. So again, I'm working with individuals that are not very knowledgeable, not very experienced or are very, very sick and need a lot of extra attention. So it's kind of like a concierge type medicine rather than, you know, a, a, a line like a methadone clinic where there's a line around the clinic and, you know, people coming in, giving their $17, walking out with their medication and, you know, being told to have a good day. You know, it, it's not that. No, it's, it's really comprehensive. I spoke to a lot of your patients. Um, the, the most eye opening on how big of an impact you're having here locally where we're at in the Orlando area was at the true leave grand opening. After you left, I think the next five people that came in, and I'm not even lying, were your patients. Because we, we were talking about you, and then they were like, oh, Dr. Rosado, yeah, he's my patient, my patient. So you're doing great work. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover that you're seeing coming up in your practice, maybe? Um... The only thing that I am a little concerned about, and it's more state it, statewide, is um, as physicians, a, a good percentage of us, about a thousand of us, took the eight-hour course. I was in the first 30 doctors that took the course back in 2015 when the course first came available. And I did my eight-hour course, paid my $1,000, and then I did the two-hour course to be the med- medical director, uh, which was an additional you know, $300 because I was con- – uh, part of one of the uh, present license holders, um, medical director for the application process. And so I was involved with that in that arena. And so I was early on doing this. And a year prior to that, I was already learning and reading and studying and getting up to speed and, you know, doing uh, seminars and courses either online or going to Colorado or Maine to learn from the ones that have been doing it for a while, just to shadow them and learn from them. Um, Cause I was, I was, you know, committed to this mode of, of treatment anyway. Um, then now in September, October, they put out the new two hour course for $250 that all of us had to retake to be, to continue to maintain our certification. And we have 90 days to complete that course. My concern is that with the new rules and regulations that have come down regarding the informed consent or the equal to or similar condition paperwork that we have to fill out, the additional paperwork that is involved and the fear mongering that has come down with both the informed consent put on by the Board of Medicine and Board of Osteopathic Medicine and 
the other, um, the equal to or similar condition paperwork that we have to fill out, which a lot of patients are refusing to fill out because they perceive that it's a violation of their HIPAA rights. Well, can, I'm sorry. What is that? Because I'm, maybe I'm not aware with, with that. It's a form. Yeah, it's a form that was created for. Uh, you know that there's the nine diagnoses that are allowed in the state of Florida: PTSD, HIV, AIDS, um, Crohn's, Parkinson's, um, glaucoma, sclerosis, and, yeah. PTSD, um, cancer, cancer, and epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've got those nine conditions, but then there's a caveat that says any condition similar to or greater in severity as any of the ones mentioned above. But to do so, to include those patients in those, you have to fill out a form which goes to either the Board of Medicine or the Board of Osteopathic Medicine for each one of those respective boards to approve the patient based on the new conditions or those conditions. And so you have to include the patient's ID number. You don't put their name, but you put their ID number. Well, once that ID number and that application gets there, the patients are fearful because all who anyone has to do is go to the registry, plug, plug that, those numbers in, and now they have the person's name, address, phone number, social security number, height, weight, etc. Let me stop you right there because this brings up something that's pertinent. I got a message from a buddy of mine who's a developer and there's people that are starting to pop up on these freelance sites and they're trying to get developers to scrape the registry. To, like People are actively trying to get into the registry already that aren't even on the Board of Medicine. So there's a lot of privacy concerns, especially when you have this board. To me, and I, I know this is not your opinion, but to me it sounds a little, little, little fascist. We have this like board that's kind of decide that can decide. To my knowledge, they haven't denied anyone, um, but whether your condition is valid or not, and how do they make that determination? You know. And so for that reason, a lot of doctors I'm hearing, because after after the new law passed, maybe a couple hundred doctors have taken the two-hour course that are not part of the group that, uh, you know, not part of my group that already had taken the eight-hour course and needed the renewal. These are brand new doctors that have taken this course and a lot of concern that lies ahead is that after December 25th, where the 90 days are up, what percentage of doctors, of the number of doctors that are registered are going to drop because they've chosen not to pursue this? And if that's the case, if patients are having a hell of a time getting a doctor now, forget about it, you know, after, after the, the, the beginning of the year. Yeah, um... I, I do see a lot of barriers to entry for physicians, especially, you know, federally illegal. And then doctors definitely don't like some random board up in some faraway town telling them what to do, because at the core of being a doctor is that patient physician relationship. And it's supposed to be private and kind of sacred. Um, 
Does that concern you that a board could just come in and be like, well, Dr. Asado, that patient that you actually saw and looked over and evaluated, we don't think they're good enough. They can't have it. Yeah, I'm concerned because you, when we're, we're constantly practicing defensive medicine anyway, you know, whether it's from a patient, uh, a patient or patient family member or a whistleblower or whomever or pharmacist you know, reporting us. So we're looking over our shoulders in that regard. Then we're the ones that went to school. We're the ones that have the patient in front of us. We're the ones that agree that this patient would benefit from cannabis. And then we get a board. And it was interesting that when a few of the advocates were before the board of medicine and board of osteopathic medicine, and the question was asked, how many of you guys are registered or have taken the course? The response was, "We're not at liberty to discuss that. We don't have. We're not. We don't have to share that information, which is public knowledge because any all of us that are certified are on a list. So yeah, and on my website because I have every doctor that's on that passionate use registry the listing on my site. There's tons of places to get that info, which is funny why they wouldn't just answer it. Exactly, and so you know." There's a, you know, I would venture to say that probably one and or two at most have taken the course and are knowledgeable. But again, the course that we just took, that two hour course, doesn't even mention the endocannabinoid system. So, you know, there's no there's no true principle. It was written by two attorneys, not even a physician was part of, of the writing of that, you know, two hour course. Oh, well that's, that makes a lot of sense. Attorneys write the medical course. Yeah. So you know what the whole course was about. It was scaring the crap out of the doctor about what the law is and how you're not going to break the law. Cause if you do break the law, then it's a second degree, you know, uh, misdemeanor or second degree felony, or you're going to be fined this amount, or you're going to be you have your license suspended or revoked, and you're like, what the hell, you know? Yeah, because that's your livelihood. You, you start seeing images of like family being kicked out of the house, can't even make any money anymore if they take your license. So that's yeah. a huge scare factor. And to my knowledge, nobody's license has been taken across the country unless they were doing something against the protocols set forth by the state. Yeah, there's so much medical malpractice going on all over the United States that us recommending a plant is re should really be the least significant thing. Oh, yeah, you have doctors doing all kinds of shady stuff. I, I, I don't I think it's a scare tactic, like you were saying, to, just to slow down the progress of the movement. And so for that reason, there is a concern of, you know, some of my colleagues and myself, as well as some of the big advocates, you know, Florida for Care, Florida Cannabis Coalition, et cetera, mm -hmm. seeing a drop in the number of certified physicians to recommend. And then the one that's going to end up getting the shitty end of the stick is going to be the patient because, you know, there's not going to be enough physicians to be able to manage the volume of patients that are, that need the medication and then add to that, you know, it, and that that's a domino effect because now you've got dispensaries that have invested all this time and money in having product and the products are going to go, you know, 
they're either going to have excess product that's going to go bad because there's not enough patients, not enough doctors to recommend to patients and not enough patients going in and buying medication. So it's, you know, I'm concerned for what the future will hold. So I, I hope that more doctors get involved, but hopefully, you know, with, with your advocacy and everyone else's and these interviews that you do, you know, people hear the other side of the story and get involved and realize that this is an amazing tool to add to your, you know, toolbox to provide, you know, optimal care for your patients. Absolutely. And that's a big reason why I um, like to have, you know, physicians like you, Dr. Weiner, Dr. Gordon, and others on the show is because I know just from digging through my newsletter list and followers online, there are physicians that follow the movement and what we're doing that are still on the fence trying to make that decision. And the more we can get the truth out there, um, the better it is for the patient because they, they learn more. And then also it's better for the patient because we may encourage new physicians to get on board because you guys are the, um, the gatekeepers to this entire program. Without this, I mean, that's the entry point into the system is the physician. So without more, you know, a, a good number of physicians, it, it becomes difficult for patients to even get access to the medicine. There's still a lot of towns that may only have one or none. Um, I think we have put in a lot of good information. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to speak about? No, we covered pretty much everything that we had agreed that we were going to talk about, and then some. So yeah, are, are you going to are you going to be in Miami for Art Basel this weekend? You going to go to any of those? No, um, I, I'll be seeing patients because one Saturday a month I see patients, and this is my Saturday to see patients. Imagine that a doctor sees patients on Saturdays. What? Don't you do what? some work with like the community thing or I, I think I remember and, and maybe I'm wrong, but don't you do some of like the rotation in on like um, helping um, people that are lower income or do you do that? Yeah, I volunteer with uh, Shepherd's Hope. That's uh, what it is. Yeah, Shepherd's Hope. They're in the uh, central Florida area um, and once a month. Um, I volunteer <clears throat> my and see patients um, at these. It's a free clinic. That's and amazing. With all of the stuff that's going on in Puerto Rico, you know, we're getting a big influx of people coming from the island as a result of Irma and Maria. And so these patients are coming to the central Florida area that need, you know, to see a doctor that either their treatment was cut in half or they couldn't complete their treatment because of the hurricane situation or need their medications or need to have blood work or whatever. And so as a result of that, um, I've upped my hours of volunteering from once a month to twice a month, um, to go in and, and see patients, you know, for free. And in that three to four hour time slot, I usually see anywhere between 12 and 20 patients. So we're moving, we're cranking. You're doing amazing work, Dr. Rosado. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Could you just do me a favor and let everyone know 
how they can contact you if they're interested in learning more about your services or becoming a patient? Sure. Um, I have, I'm in two locations in the Central Florida area. One location is on the north end of uh, Orange County slash Orlando, which happens to be about a mile and a half from the new True Leave location. Plug, plug. Um, the phone number is 407-292-2200. 407-292-2200. And that's uh, on the north end of Orange County. And then I have another office on the south end of Orange County, um, which is by Oak Ridge and Orange Blossom Trail. And the number there is 407-859-8797. 407-859-8797. Excellent. And um, you accept all forms of insurance for like your regular visits and stuff? Someone asked me that the other day. For regular visits, yes. Um, for medical cannabis visits, unfortunately, no. Although there are some individuals in the state, some doctors that are accepting insurance for the medical cannabis visits, um, the only state of the 50 states in the United States that allows for insurances, insurance companies to pay for medical cannabis visits is in New York. Beyond that, um, there's no, no insurance company has come out and stated, or no state has come out and said, we will cover medical cannabis visits. The only state that has done that has been New York. Therefore... Well, for that, oh, reason, for that reason, um, I do not accept health insurance for the medical cannabis visits. And typically, the patients, when they come to see me, they already have their doctors. So they're coming to me specifically for medical cannabis. And since they're, they're seeing me solely for medical cannabis, there's, you know, my documentation is limited to what I'm addressing with the cannabis. So I know there's a lot of people writing on Facebook that there's doctors accepting it or that they won't go see a doctor unless they accept it. If that's their choice, then find one of those doctors. But I will not be accepting medical insurance until, you know, I see something in writing that says I can do so. Yeah, that could jeopardize your whole contract with that insurance provider. Um, but one day that they're going to be cutting checks to you guys for cannabis, too, because we're going to make sure that I appreciate your time. Uh, like always, you put out a wealth of information and you're a pleasure to speak with. And I look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate your time. Have an amazing day and give my best to Minardi this afternoon when you talk to him. Yeah, I sure will. I sure will. Thank you, Dr. Sato. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Marijuana Solution. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. 